Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March the 17th, 2022. Uh, as always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the West Coast of the United States in Northern California. Uh, on second thoughts, though, I'm not sure if that's exactly where I am, because, of course, this is being broadcast on something that we call the Internet. And that is the subject of today's conversation uh, with a man in Paris but we also argues that um, the internet is not what we think it is. I'm not sure quite what most of us think of the internet, whether it's technology, an idea, a network. But my guest today, um, Justin E.H. Smith, uh, believes that the internet is not as new as you think. And he has a new book out. The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, A History, A Philosophy, and A Warning. His name is Justin E.H. Smith. He's talking to us from the 19th arrondissement in Paris, where he lives and teaches. Lucky man. Uh, Justin, to kick off, what exactly is the Internet? I know that's a tricky one, but you're a philosopher, so you're probably best situated to answer this tricky question as anyone you've just written a book about it so what is the <laughs> internet justin e h smith well the book declares what the internet is not <laughs> i'm not sure well, that's not it, very uh, good justin you want to tell me what it is right well i'm not sure it's something that admits of what philosophers call necessary and sufficient conditions um you can specify any number of aspects or dimensions of it and you're off to a good start but then someone else will always be able to come along and say what about this i would say at a minimum if we're thinking about it historically and genealogically it is the coming together of two centuries-old technologies, namely uh, technologies of telecommunication and of information processing and storage. Um, when these two came together, it's hard to say exactly when, to some extent, already in the 19th century, um, you had the components in place, but what we recognize as the internet really only takes shape in the latter half of the 20th century. That said, there's another kind of limited definition of internet that I offer in the book, which is what I call the phenomenological internet, which is to say the internet you and I and most of us spend most of our time on the one that allows you to scroll and to like and to purchase um, and uh, to um, to retweet and to uh, click on hyperlinks. That is to say, the one that gives us our feeling of what the contours of the space are, even if in the end, um, that familiar internet, the internet we experience, um, probably uh, occupies a rather small portion of the overall digital space taken up by what in a broader sense is the internet. So there are several different possible definitions. 
We've given it a lot of thought. The internet is not what you think it is, a history, a philosophy, a warning. Uh, you're a philosopher, uh, a formal, mm. a professional philosopher, uh, Justin. Mm. Some of your books include uh, Irrationality, a history of the dark side of reason, The Philosopher, a history in six types, uh, Nature, Human Nature and Human Difference, and uh, Divine Machines, Leibniz and the Science of Life. When you began this project of mm -hmm. writing about the internet, what, what did you think it was? And, and did this project change your mind in any way? Well, there are a few different background interests that led me to this. One has been the extreme transformation of my um, cognitive and other habits over the past 10 or 15 years and my growing concern about that. Um, I'm a Twitter addict. Um, and oh, you I'm are? Also, I am, a yes. A philosopher I, I, on Twitter. Uh, Justin, why are you well, wasting your time? You need more... You need more work. I'm going to talk to the University of Paris to give you a bit more work. Why are you wasting well, your time on Twitter? That's that's what an addiction is. It's when you're doing something you know you should well, not. Why? You, why? What's um, so addictive for you as a philosopher about Twitter, tweeting with the, the masses? The dopamine reward system. I have the same basic hormonal chemical composition as non-philosophers, right? So oh, you do? Uh, a philosopher can get addicted to Twitter just as easily as a philosopher can become an alcoholic. And, you know, that happens too. Um, but so, so my behavior changed in ways that I didn't mostly didn't like, but also in some ways that I found more curious and I'm not sure whether they're good or bad. The example I often give is my long now long use of Wikipedia in particular as a sort of cognitive prosthesis um, whereby if I'm just walking so along explain that in everyday language uh, cognitive prosthesis what did you call it a cognitive Pro prosthesis like you know like a prosthetic painful, limb. Uh, like if if you if you get your if you get your arm cut off and so, and they put a plastic arm on you that's a prosthetic arm Right. So I'm saying that uh, the Internet now is something like a prosthetic mind for me. And um, so, for example, 20 years ago, if I were walking down the street and I said to myself, what is a quasar anyway? Or how many galaxies in a galaxy cluster anyway? Um, I would just think, eh, I might learn someday. I'll remember to ask the next time I'm talking to an astronomer or something like that, right? And I probably would have never learned, right? Or I would have forgotten by the time the opportunity came up to ask someone or to consult the appropriate work. Now I know within 15 seconds, more or less, what a quasar is, right? So, so and to I, come back to your initial reasons for mm -hmm. researching and thinking and writing this book, was it a kind of therapy, an investigation of the crisis of yourself because you were addicted to Twitter? Was it something else? Well, well, I, I mean, I actually think I became more addicted to Twitter in the course of working on the book, which can be um, which can be partially excused as a form of research, right? Like going undercover, um, and because I, I, I did want to go deep into the the discursive culture of what is called the extremely online um, and because I really do think that there is some kind of vanguard of 
human thought and innovation to be found there. And that if you don't have, if you don't attune yourself to the sensibilities of the extremely online, then you are, to some extent, a normie, right? And being a normie is a handicap, um, both in this world in general, but especially if you want to write a book about the internet. So you mentioned gotta... um, you mentioned the vanguard, uh, Justin. Uh, mm -hmm. Before we went live, you told me you live around the corner from the headquarters <laughs> of the French Communist Party. That's right. Yeah, which yeah. Of course, Marx not thinking of the French, but generally imagine mm. communists as the vanguard of the proletariat. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are, the, what are the, the, the digerati, what are they the vanguard of in a, in a, in a kind of a Hegelian sense, if that could yeah, ever be well, conceivable? I guess the answer would be they're the, they're the vanguard of the world that is um, yet to be born, right? <laughs> we don't know what that is. Um, and Which is a very for, uh, Marxist or Hegelian notion, isn't it? Well, yeah, except that Marx had a clearer idea of what that world was going to be, whereas, um, whereas for me, it's it's um, it's all very much up in the air, and I don't whatever it is, I don't think it's going to be good. Philosophers like things which are up in the air, don't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. You could say that. Um, but let me let me finish my answer to your your question about um, about. The, the background motivation. One okay. was simply my own awareness of my own um, cognitive and behavioral transformations over the past 15 years. Um, and the other uh, was that it's a natural outgrowth of the work I've long been doing on the, let's say, broadly speaking, the history of what was called natural philosophy in the 17th century. So the study of um, the ways in which the things of nature um, are organized um, and how they do what they do. In other words, broadly what would be called science today. Um, and I had previously been interested in particular in the way people engaged with the life sciences or the phenomena of the living world in the 17th century. But I was also attuned to what I see now as the mirror image of the study of living systems, which is the study of artificial systems. And no one kind of brings these two together more clearly than Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. Yeah, I looked up Leibniz yeah, on Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah you, there you, you go. You, yeah. you don't need to do that, or you didn't need to do that. I, did, I, didn't have, I didn't have to look up Leibniz on Wikipedia, no. Um, uh, 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 so Leibniz is known for many things, among them uh, for um, devising a binary calculus for encoding all information into zeros and ones, and also for building a, a, a working um, a reckoning engine, which is to say an arithmetical calculator. Um, and so Leibniz represents a vision of, uh, of, let's say, the study of natural and artificial systems that, that takes it that, they, that they're, they'll, th this study will advance the best, the most effectively, 
when these two branches are as close together as possible. And we see this same spirit into the middle of the 20th century with people like Norbert Wiener and the project of cybernetics. What is cybernetics? It's the study of organization in living in, sorry, in animal and machine systems, right? So broadly speaking, what I realized is that the materials I had been writing on for years and the history of the life sciences, this was actually just one part of something much broader, which is the history of cybernetics, which precedes Norbert right. Wiener. And, 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 and Norbert Wiener, of course, is considered now one of the fathers or at least co-fathers yeah. of the internet as the inventor of cybernetics. Very briefly, um, uh, uh, Justin, um, in your Wired piece, which mm. oh yeah, the book, it, it, some of the highlighted stuff, and, and and excuse me if I'm interpreting your stuff in a bit of a vulgar way, mm. uh, you write the spider's web is a web in the at least in the same respects that the World Wide Web is a web. You write, mm -hmm. why should we not see our own technology as natural technique? And you write. Mm -hmm. The ecology of the internet is only one more recent layer of the ecology of the planet as a whole. Mm -hmm. Are you mm -hmm. suggesting then that the internet is something that is deeply environmental? Yeah, well, a few a few comments about these pull quotes. Wired ran um, uh, a long excerpt of, I guess, what is chapter two of the book, which is the the ecologically themed chapter so i, yeah. I don't uh, why I don't, do they I, write you write when you write about our common cosmological theory yeah uh, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um so uh it's not in every chapter but in chapter two i do try to push as far as i can uh the um ecological analogy to the point and i also reflect to a great length um on what kind of explanatory work analogies do. Like if we find it a compelling analogy, does that tell us something about the internet? Um, now, obviously there are some important dissimilarities as well. And I say some of the respects in which a spider's web is a web are also the respects in which the World Wide Web is a web. I was thinking here uh, about those species of spiders in particular that sit at the middle of their web and wait to feel vibrations coming in from the edges of the web, which is a kind of, um, you know, remote warning system. Um, and this is what I wanted to say is integral to the spider's sensory apparatus. It's not something that's super added, but it's in a sense part of what you could call extended spider cognition. Do you right? feel uh, in the book, in a way, Justin, you're you're saving the internet? It's become <laughs> such a uh, it's become such a, a, a persona. Not that it's a persona, a persona non grata for mm. many intellectuals these days. The root of all evil. We've had so many shows on the destruction of freedom and democracy by the internet. Mm. Are you part of this pushback in a in a zeitgeisty kind of way? saying, well, it's not quite as bad as you think, and it's it's more complicated than you think? Yeah. I mean, certainly naturalizing it, making it look like it's just part of what we do as a certain kind of living being is a way of, is a way of, yeah, 
it's it's a it's a consoling vision because it places it within a big picture rather than making it seem like something new that just came out of nowhere that is unprecedented. Um, beyond that, I would say the overall the overall tone and the general conclusions are pretty pessimistic um, that I don't think there is much that is good about the internet in its current- uh, Even Twitter, Justin? Even, especially Twitter, yeah. Um, uh, 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 in its current organization. Um, and uh, uh, I would want to see almost everything about its current uh, version um, just uh, bulldozed <laughs> and then start again with something that harnesses these technological potentials, which are in themselves neither good nor bad, which is to say uh, the potential for te telecommunication and information processing and storage and transmission, right? In principle, obviously, those are neither good nor bad. Right, and what um, we're doing, I mean, we couldn't do what we're doing without the internet. So I assume that yeah. in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. We are talking with Justin E.H. Smith, the author of a brand new book. I think it's out this week. The internet mm -hmm. is not what you think it is. A history, a philosophy, a warning. Justin, we're going to take a, a short 60-second mm -hmm. internet break, and then we'll be back. And I want to talk about the three quotations at the beginning of the book. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Think speak to your interests and concerns. Mm. So we'll be yeah. back with Justin E.H. Smith, the author of The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, in about 60 seconds. Hold tight, everyone. <laughs> Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Justin E.H. Smith, the author of The Internet Is Not What You Think It Is. Justin, uh, last week I had William Boyd, the uh, Anglo-Scottish or British uh, novelist on the show, who told me that 
beginning quotes were always the key to any book. And I'm curious mm -hmm. as to the beginning of your book. You begin with a, a quote from, uh, from the great Leibniz himself, who you say mm -hmm. you've always been fascinated with, uh, from mm -hmm. 1718, from uh, G.W. Mm -hmm. Leibniz. Now this connection or adaptation of all created things to each and each of uh, each and of each in, in all means that each simple substance has relations which express all the others, and consequently that it is that it is a perpetual living mirror of the universe. Mm. Is this an articulation of some sort of pantheism? Uh, you could say that, yeah, Leibniz is a pantheist, and what he's describing there is his most kind of basic metaphysical picture of the world, the theory of monads. Uh, and uh, the reason why that quote is there is because I had originally called the book The Living Mirror, A Philosophy of the Internet. Um, that got scrapped for a few reasons, and one of them is that a close collaborator and colleague of mine in Leibniz studies already has a book called Living Mirrors, and I simply forgot about him, um, so we had to scrap it. But I wanted to retain that image, which I think is really quite salient for thinking about what Leibniz would have thought about the internet. And I mean, it's almost a commonplace. You hear this in among philosophers, already going back to the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze in the, in the mid-1990s, saying that Leibniz would have loved the internet. Right? But you, <laughs> that, uh, um, you, while you're a big fan of Leibniz, you're mm -hmm. not a pantheist. I, I saw a, a Substack post from you arguing mm. we're still not living in a simulation against oh. technophile gnosticism so so yeah. you're against this right i'm a what you're you're against this kind of oh. gnosticism well no i don't know i mean i'm against the simulation argument i think it's bad i think it doesn't work uh in the formulation that it's been given by people like nick bostrom um but that doesn't mean I'm against pantheism or I, uh, panpsychism. There, I mean, there are technical variations on this, but I think that, um, in fact, the view that uh, the world consists primarily in inert and totally experienceless matter is a fairly deviant and unusual theory to uphold and it had its reign between the 17th and the early 20th centuries and for some reason common sense still instructs us to hold it even though almost no one ever did and our best physical theories tell us not to now right so i'm not a materialist no um but i i i i definitely um uh, I'm also not a defender of the Bostrom-style simulation argument. I think the world uh, might Bostrom, be... Um, I mean, he's also famous, Nick Bostrom, who teaches at Oxford mm -hmm. because he believes that technology can acquire its own soul, I guess, in a sense. Yeah. We had, um, we had uh, the English writer Jeanette Winterson on the show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, wonderful writer. She has a new mm -hmm. book out, 12 Bites, How We Got Here, Where We Might Go Next. Mm -hmm. In many mm -hmm. ways, it's her kind of love letter to Ada Lovelace, the 19th century oh, right, mathematician, yeah. who 
invented the idea of software. You have a quote, three yeah. quotes. You have a, a Leibniz quote at the beginning of the book, and then an mm -hmm. Ada Lovelace quote from 1843, yeah. which I'm going to repeat. Those who think on the mathematical truth as the instrument through which the weak mind of men can most effectively read his creator's work will regard with a special interest all that can tend to facilitate the translation of its principles into explicit practical forms. Lovelace, mm -hmm. of course, famously said that computers can't learn to think for themselves, that they can only right. do what they're told by their creators, right. which are our which are us. Right. Do you agree? I mean, why did you put this Lovelace quote in? And do you agree with Lovelace? Well, it's I mean, it's just it's a compelling and um and 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 beautiful quote, I think, but that um picks sorry, I got the hiccups, that picks up on something um um, that is all that is still uh, strong in the 1830s when she's writing, but that is deeply rooted in the history of philosophy expressed very well by Leibniz, among others, the idea that um, that computing is a, a kind of microcosmic recreation of the world. Um, and that in computing, we are effectively doing something godlike, even if um, our creation only mirrors the world or duplicates it or models it, we would say today, um, it's still a way of coming as, cl as close to the creator-like knowledge that God has of the world as possible. And in that respect, computing is um, of interest for all, all disciplines, but even for the most. It's interesting. I, I'm thinking um, just in, in, in a couple of ways. Firstly, it, it's hard to, to teach the internet to hiccup, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder, I'm sure you could. <laughs> I don't know if you could, because it would probably ruin this this interview. But secondly, do you think God could ever hiccup? <laughs> um, I mean, what would Leibniz well, say or, or, or Ada Lovelace? Leibniz would say no. I would probably say no, except, um, I mean, except maybe if one were to go to the Spinozist line and say that, everything in the world is a mode of God. And therefore, when I hiccup, God hiccups. <laughs> but other than that... I would be divine revenge from, from the hiccuping God. Your final right. quote, which is equally interesting as the, the Lovelace and the Leibniz, is from Lauren um, Euler, the um, author of Fake Accounts, an interesting new book on, um, on social media. Uh, you, you quote from uh, Euler, this is the struggle with describing social media. It devours importance. Mm. And this comes back to your intoxication, infatuation, addiction to Twitter. It's not very yeah. important. And you're a philosopher. You're supposed to be doing important things. Why did you yeah. include the Euler quote about social media devouring importance? Does that suggest well, that maybe we shouldn't worry too much about importance? No, we should. Um, and But I wanted to throw something into that group of three. My last four books, I think, have had three epigrams. And so I like to, I like to create a trio that sits poorly 
together or sits, you know, that is in tension, in tr internal tension. And so obviously the Euler quote doesn't fit with the Lovelace and the Leibniz. Um, but, and also the Euler quote um, transmits some of the ambivalence um, that I have uh, and also signals to the reader, perhaps the more traditional philosophy reader, that I'm aware of the perception that social media is just a big black hole and nothing important ever happens there. I'm of two minds. I'm ambivalent. There's a, re a respect in which I think the most important things in the world are happening there. And this is certainly confirmed for me when I find myself, say, in front of a television and I realize that now effectively CNN, MSNBC, and so on, are really just reading tweets for old people with a two to three day delay, right? right? That's, that's, what, that's what the media, the, the so-called legacy media are doing at this point. They're not creating um, the media. They're not, they're, they're not gener generating the content on their own. They're writing in the wake of social media. So, so we are we an example of what we're doing now. This is the real thing, Justin. Uh, well, it, it kind of feels like it. I mean, conversation kind of circumvents this whole, this whole um, uh, scheme that I'm, I'm, I'm presenting because it's, you know, it's ancient and um, it's hard to say if it does any yeah, I mean, good. If you were having hiccups on CNN, they would take you off. But you're they would take me off. On keen on. <laughs> right. uh, Justin, we had uh, Jay Perini on the show, a mm. talented American writer. He had a book out about yeah. Borges. And I, when, I went, when I talked to Perini, I talked to him about the idea of Borges imagining mm -hmm. the internet before anyone yeah. else. There's some truth in that. Do you think that... Uh, a, a fictional writer like Borges, a, a man who invented spectacularly implausible worlds, could have imagined the internet before it existed? Well, the, I mean, certainly the idea of an infinite library is um, Borgesian, and it is very much um, a good way of defining the internet. Um, and so certainly he is absolutely one of the one of the great visionaries, even though I, I, I didn't discuss him um, in this particular book, but there are other places where I've I've acknowledged that um, that obvious lineage. Yeah. Finally, uh, finally, where you you bring up a couple of characters who I wouldn't have been never have never would have guessed would have shown up in a book about the Internet in your conclusion. Eric uh, Auerbach, mm. the uh, mm. author of uh, Mimesis, and above all else, uh, Sir Richard oh, yeah. Francis Burton, the author of the cult classic, The Anatomy of Melancholy. Why, why yeah. are these characters interesting and important in making sense well, of the contemporary internet? Well, I guess they come up in two different ways, though, both in the same concluding chapter. And that is... Um, I started chapter five with um, Eric Auerbach somewhat facetiously describing my plight as similar to his own, um, in particular when he wrote his masterwork on re rep representation in the history of Western literature, 
he was in exile in Istanbul, having fled from the Nazis. Um, and so I was finishing my book uh, in Brooklyn when we came under the first pandemic lockdown in the spring of 2020. And I was stuck away from the New York Public Library and away from my book access. And so it's often said of Auerbach's mimesis that in the absence of his books, he made do by writing a book kind of reflecting on their absence and on what they had, what their whole history had been prior to his being cut off from them. So I thought, again, somewhat facetiously, I'm, I'm being like Eric Auerbach here, but with one great difference, and that is that I have the internet. <laughs> Right. So yeah, um, one wonders uh, what uh, someone like uh, Auerbach or Walter Benjamin or mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, Nietzsche yeah. or, uh, or or Borges, what they would have done with the Internet. They wouldn't have been Auerbach or Benjamin or Nietzsche or, no. or, or, or Borges. And what about Sir Richard Burton? He certainly wouldn't have been Sir Richard Burton with if the Internet had been around, would he? Well, OK, so uh, it's I'm 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 talking about Robert Burton. So we, we should be good. Be clear on this oh, one. Oh, uh, yeah, the, uh, the author yeah, of The yeah, Anatomy yeah, yeah, yeah. of Melancholy. Yeah, yeah, um, who's a 17th century author writing uh, the, the Anatomy of Melancholy comes out in 1621. And um, Burton is, an in, is a clever character because he writes this book that is supposedly a, a, a medical treatise on melancholy, that is on black bile. Um, but... He just uses the occasion to write about whatever he wants with long tangents. And um, so and that's what I, you're I, doing in a sense, I guess. In a sense. I like his style. I like his humor. Um, but what's striking to me are so, some of the things he says about um, how happy he is to contemplate the world from, from within his um, college cloister. He lived his whole whole life um, at Oxford. Um, and so he's in this room filled with books and maps and so on. And he gets daily Depeche from around the world and is extremely clued in to what's going on in the world. And, um, and I, I find this interesting that, you know, long before telecommunications, properly speaking, there was uh, this kind of way of living that was, in a sense, you know, uh, hikikomori, withdrawn, um, information-dense, um, uh, uh, cloisteredness that I think the pande pandemic plus the internet threw us all into willy-nilly. And... And it was in that context that I started thinking about how wise and lucid Robert Burton had been about a similar situation, even though he was um, relying on technologies that we think of as much too slow to keep you um, uh, hooked, hooked in with the rest of the world. He didn't experience them as slow. Yeah, you, you mentioned exile. Um... Justin, you're a Californian in Paris, so you're exiled mm. in Paris. You write about Auerbach being exiled and the exile mm -hmm. of COVID and living in New York. 
but you're also a Californian. And of course, the internet in oh, a yeah. sense was invented in California. You've done a lot of writing and thinking about what California is. I, I found a, yeah. an interesting Substack essay from you uh, on, on Josiah Royce. It, should we consider it any surprise that the internet was, so to speak, invented, although it wasn't really invented in, the, in, in, in California? It was certainly pioneered and developed. Um, yeah. you know, uh, uh, Norbert Wiener, of course, was was based on the East Coast, and perhaps it was born on the East Coast, but it, mm-hmm. it, it grew up in California. Is there anything yeah. coincidental about that, or should we expect it? Oh, I don't think I don't think there's anything coincidental about it at all. In fact, I think um, you know when Josiah Royce uh, complains to William James in a letter of I think 1889, he says there is no philosophy in California. Final, final dot. Right. Um, doesn't it doesn't seem to mean that, you know, I haven't succeeded yet in organizing a philosophy department or something like that. It is like as much as to say you cannot philosophize in California. It's impossible. Right. Um, Which is why you're in Paris. So, right. Yeah. So um, it's almost as if uh, what emerged and that so. Th- that was 1889 or so. By the 1910s, you already have um, the first U.S. tours of the United States by um, by Indian gurus who realize there's a huge market and who don't stop on the East Coast, but continue to California. Throughout most of the 20th century, California was a land of opportunity for uh, uh, people who want to um, exploit the the desires and hopes and insecurities of the the common people without really inviting them to think about the nature of their desires and hopes and worries, right? And so what you get is... I won't mince my words here, a pseudo-philosophy, which underlies the entire economy and cult- culture of Silicon Valley. Is that Silicon the biggest insult, uh, Justin, a philosopher can give to something, calling it a pseudo-philosophy? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, there it's are... Pretty, that's, pretty, that's pretty hard-hitting from a Paris-based philosopher, Justin E.H. Smith, the <laughs> author of the internet is not what you think it is a history a philosophy a warning he is just as erudite as discursive and fascinating in print as he is in person doesn't hiccup on the page yeah, that makes exactly. it even more authentic <laughs> justin in addition to your new book the internet is not what you think it is uh, um what else should people be reading in these strange times these hiccupy times <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm such a not Leibniz, or should we all be rereading Leibniz? He's probably pretty hard to read, isn't he? Oh no, I mean, he's pretty straightforward. He's one of the easier, um, more kind of prosaic writers. He 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 was German, but he wrote in French, and ah. so the benefit of writing in a second language is that it is very kind of clear and straight to the point. So more Nietzsche um, than Kant or Hegel. Much, I mean, Leibniz is a German philosopher before German philosophy is really a thing, right? Yeah. And so it, so he has to has to switch to French so that other philosophers will read him. By the time of Kant, that's 
a, a whole different situation. Um, let's see what what have I what have I been reading? Um, it's it's kind of hard to hard to to know what to recommend. I, I does literature count? Yeah, of um, course it counts, Justin. This is okay. Up. I've been I've been reading Proust's great um, seven volume oeuvre, oeuvre, which which is going to take me about a year. Um, I don't know what on, he'd think of the internet, Proust. Uh, he'd probably. I mean, he has a lot. Of, I mean, he's curious about a lot of things, like the um, uh, uh, what was it called, the concertophone, yeah, which was a telephone. He's in, so addicted to Twitter, he wouldn't have had time to write his book. Yeah, but no, he did have the, his family was one of the first to subscribe to the service in Paris when there's an opera. You can just pick up a phone and they oh, broadcast. Wow. And that was like, you know, 1903 or something. And so that's kind of internet like, right? And and he was in, he was in, into it. He thought it was um he thought it was cool. I I don't know if he has much of a theoretical uh, reflection on it so so yeah reading um in search of lost time is is something that takes up a, a lot of my um well, as, long as, my it, own... as long as it gets you off twitter i think we've got to get yeah, you off yeah, twitter, yeah, yeah. justin yeah 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 um and um let's see what else um i've also uh been reading a lot about the voynich manuscript recently <laughs> Which might develop into a, a proper research project. I'm I'm not really sure. The Voynich manuscript is a uh, is a, a cipher text written in the early fifteenth century, and nobody knows who wrote it or even what language it's in. And more mysteriously still, um, it has an illustration of a plant or an astronomical sign on nearly wow. every page, and none of these has been identified identified either so it's one of the great mysteries almost everybody who gets into it is a total nutcase <laughs> nutcase um and i'm pretty sure i'm not one but um, well, i have to who, say so um, <laughs> great suggestions justin e.h smith the author of the internet is not what you think it is justin uh, who runs the world these days who's in charge oh um uh, the internet <laughs> I mean that's that's my answer. I mean, individual human beings come and go, um, but um, it's run by big tech, and that transforms the the contours and potentials of each and every day we live, what we think of as being possible to do, um, and it also shapes our idea of the future fundamentally. Um, again, you know. Um, Putin, Trump, people like that, they're here today, gone to, gone tomorrow. Um.